All right. Good morning. Good morning. It's been a privilege to be able to do this, and I want to say too, Mr. Mr. Abishan, uh, Alan has been down doing Sunday school for quite a while, pretty much since COVID, every single week. And it's not like this is varsity and that's junior varsity. Like, that's not the way this is at all. In fact, what did Jesus say? Let the little children come unto me. So it's a big deal. So thank you, Alan. This stuff matters. Okay. All right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to read our scripture reading. Let's do that, and then we're going to dismiss for Children's Church. Let's see. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Verses 14 through 21. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? or with love in a spirit of gentleness. It's God's word. Amen. Children, you are dismissed. I'm going to pray again. That's allowed, right? We're going to do that. Father, we do just thank you for this time. I ask that you would come in power today, that you would speak through your word. We recognize that this is your word. And we just ask that you would help us to believe that and that you would come in power, that we would see great change in what we hear today. In Jesus' name, amen. So the goal of Christianity, the goal of Christianity is not to make you a good God talker, okay? The goal of Christianity is not to make you a good God talker. Eugene Peterson uses this phrase, God talk, to describe those who use language about God in the abstract, away from lived reality. In his book, The Pastor, this is what he says. What I have come to see and continue to recognize is that if I had to put in a single sentence what I've learned from John, and he means the Apostle John, regarding the way he wrote what he saw, it is this. God talk, depersonalized, non-relational, unlistening language kills. 
In the land of the living, it is blasphemous, whether spoken from pulpits or across the breakfast table. Pastors and their congregations can't be too careful in the way we use language, this sacred language, this word of God language. I had been incrementally realizing that there is far more to this Christian life than getting it right. There is living it right. Learning the truth of God, the gospel, the scriptures, involves understanding words, concepts, history. But living it means working through a world of deception, of doubt and suffering, a world of rejections and betrayal and idolatry. We don't grow and mature in our Christian life by sitting in a classroom and library listening to lectures and reading books, or going to church and singing hymns and listening to sermons. We do it by taking the stuff of our ordinary lives, our parents and children, our spouses and friends, our workplaces and fellow workers, our dreams and fantasies, our attachments, our easily accessible gratifications, our depersonalizing of intimate relations, our commodification of living truths into idolatries taking all this and placing it on the altar of refining fire. Our God is a consuming fire and finding it all stuff redeemed for a life of holiness. And so one of the sins that the Corinthian church was prone to was fancy, spiritual, even Christian sounding talk. Let's call it dumb talk. Dumb talk. And I mean D-O-M. D-O-M talk, dumb talk. That is wisdom minus the wise. And so dumb talk always leads to strife, jealousies, factions. It might look and sound sexy like Lady Folly always does. Remember the book of wisdom, the book of Proverbs? Lady Folly looks pretty good, but ends in death. And so that kind of talk always leads that way because it does not carry the radiant beauty of Lady Wisdom, the other woman in the Psalms. True wisdom is not rooted in the kingdom of this world. It's rooted in the kingdom of God. False wisdom, folly, exalts man. It praises self. It makes other things God. makes politics God. Makes Christian heroes God. Makes sex God. Makes health and life God. It can make even doctrine God. But true wisdom is rooted in the kingdom of God and in the ways and word and work of King Jesus. True wisdom is rooted in the kingdom of God and the ways and the word and the work of King Jesus in real life. In real life. Sometimes it looks like human weakness. We've been learning that. Sometimes the wisdom of God looks like human weakness. But human weakness that is lit up by divine power. It reverses worldly values. But there's always a temptation to go after false wisdom. And so we've been seeing that for several chapters. This is kind of the last sermon on this particular theme of rivalries, dissension, factions, and the way of the word of the cross as a way to combat this idea that you just kind of philosophize and have a bunch of wonderful sounding talk. So I want to title this message, Christian Talk is Not Christianity. 
Christian talk is not Christianity. That's not what the good news is. So look at verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed. So what has Paul been doing here? What did he do last week? What did he do in the verses before? He was engaging in irony. We kind of talked about comedy a little bit last week. And irony and comedy and the way that sometimes you can use that to get under the actual truth. We talked about how comedians at times can do that. They can use humor to actually really reveal things that are deeply true and sometimes confront lies. And so, he is not just doing that to be like the bully in the playground. You know, that's just like making fun of his friend, or I should say classmate, in the playground to just make fun of him. He is doing it as a dad, as a dad, warning his children. So he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. So he's a dad that's not looking to just shame his kids. He's a dad that's looking to admonish them. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. He loves them. He cares for them. He loves this church. So though he's speaking pretty intensely, and sometimes dads, parents need to do that, But it's all framed in love. It's all that he loves the Corinthian church. So he's not coming as a professor. He's not coming as a philosopher. He's not coming as a bully, but as a father. And correction is loving. Correction is loving. Doesn't always feel loving in the moment. But all of us, whether we're young kids, whether we're old kids, all of us need to know that correction is loving. Admonishment is kind of a fancy word. Admonishment. One commentator said that this, is, this word means correction while not provoking or embittering. So there's a way that I have failed to talk to my kids that were not in that way that were more exasperating, more angry. And then there's a way to correct that is loving. Still not be what they want to hear, but it's loving. It doesn't embitter them toward, toward you. It doesn't provoke them to anger. And so he's saying, hey, I'm coming to admonish you. I am correcting you as a father. Proverbs 27, 5. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Next verse. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So love can rebuke. Love can correct. In fact, it is not loving if a father never corrected or rebuked or warned his children. That would not be loving. In our culture, sometimes we think correction or saying that you're on the wrong path or that what you're doing is wrong. That's not what our culture enjoys. They get quite upset about it. And all of us, of course, do. It's not just on the outside. 
But this idea that you could correct me or say that I'm on the wrong path is a great offense in our culture and it would have been an offense to them as well. But he's saying that's what fathers do. Fathers lovingly correct. And all of Proverbs is, is arranged around this father and son imagery. He's always saying things like, my son, be attentive to me. My son, listen to me. My son, those first several chapters are built on that. Listen to this. This is Proverbs 4, 10 to 4. Hear my son and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of a brightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your, your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked. And do not walk in the way of the evil. A couple of things happening here. It's a father saying, listen to what I'm saying. And a father also saying, hey, I've taught you this. And I've led you. And these are paths. These are ways. This is a way of life. When you go about your life in the ordinary way of life, if you do these things, if you imitate me, if you follow me, you're not going to stumble. And also says things like, do not, don't go that way. So there can be warning. And so that's what Paul is doing here. He's admonishing them as his beloved children. Saying, hey Corinthians, remember who you are. I love you. I'm saying this. This is some intense stuff that I've just been saying to you. I've been correcting you but I love you. Verse 15, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. So here we see that fathers are greater than guides and guardians. There's different translations of that particular word. Countless guides. The, the literal, your footnote probably says 10,000. So that's kind of a translation, countless. He's really just saying 10,000 guides and how do we use that? It's a superlative. It's kind of like what he was doing just a little bit ago when he's kind of making all these extreme superlative statements. He's saying, hey, for, though you got 10,000 guides out there, though there's just a bunch of people, a bunch of philosophers, a bunch of things that are being said a bunch of so-called leaders saying, I'm coming to you as a father. And this guides and guardians language is not one that we are used to because we don't have that in our culture. But in that household, um, in Paul's epistles, we have things like the household code. He's talking to fathers and sons and different things like that and wives and husbands. Well, there were guardians and I'm not going to read the Greek word because I don't know how to say it. But, he, but one commentator says, it is not easy to translate this word, guardians, for in our community we do not have the equivalent. The word referred to a slave who had special responsibility for a boy. The, I'm, I'm going to try now. The pedagogos was the personal attendant who accompanied the boy, took him to school and home again, heard him recite his lines, taught him good manners, and generally looked after him. He was entitled to respect and normally received it. Clearly, he was important. But Craig, who's another commentator, reminds us that he could be a quite worthless slave and that he could be replaced. There was a great difference between him and a father. So he's saying, hey, in some of your households, there, there are... Slaves that take your children to school. They might teach you manners. They might do different things. They might be um, cared for. And they would even be respectable. 
They would be a, a respectable person in the household. But it was different than a father. He said, hey, you got a bunch of those kinds of guides, of guardians. But they're, not only are they not even the teachers that are actually there where you're going to learn, they're not the father. And the father in that culture would have had quite the authority as well. And so Paul is saying, hey, I am coming to you as a father. He's asserting his authority over them. And it's interesting because in America, I was kind of struck by that phrase, not many fathers. He's saying, not many fathers. America, we know, is plagued by a culture that does not have many fathers. A lot of young kids, I think 23% or so, live in single-parent homes. And usually, women, ages 35 to 59, this is Pew Research, I think it's in 2019, Women tend to be the single parent most of the time. And again, I think we all know this. We all see this. And Paul is saying, hey, I come to you as a father. And notice he says, though you have countless guides in Christ, again, these people are telling you about Jesus and different things, but you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so Paul pulls rank in a sense. He says, I'm your father. I planted the church. That happened in Acts 18, I think it is. He's the one that came and planted the church of Corinth. It's not that it's his church. Because notice that phrase, in Christ. That's always the key. He's a father in Christ. So yes, he's saying, I have some authority here. I've been given authority by God. But he's saying there's a higher authority. So it's not just like a patriarchal society. He's just kind of pulling all of his weight and saying, hey, I'm the father, you do everything that I say. His fatherhood is rooted in Christ and in the ways of Christ. That's all the picture that he's been painting before of why he comes the way that he does, why he's still working as a tent maker, why he's, why he's living a life in weakness because the gospel came in weakness. And so he's saying, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So, his sphere of authority is always under and in Jesus Christ. Verse 16. I urge you then. It's another thing dads can do. Or kind of like a coach can do. I urge you then. Hey, I just said, I don't write these things to you. I'm not trying to make you ashamed. But here's what I am calling you to do. I am urging you to be imitators of me. I am urging you to be imitators of me. Now, what do fathers and sons do? Sons imitate fathers. That's part of the role of parents. Your kids will imitate you. Whether you like that or not, that will happen. And they will, to get back to this whole Christian talk is not Christianity, it will not just be our talk and our instructions and our warnings that our children imitate. It will be our sins. It will be our successes. But they will model. That's what happens. That's the way life works. And so Paul is saying, hey, Christian talk is not, is not Christianity. There is modeling here. The gospel is meant to be modeled. There's meant to be imitation. I urge you then, be imitators of me. So, 
use a fancy term, cogitation, just having information come at us. Cogitation is not equal to imitation. So just because you've heard something, just because it came into your eardrums, or just because the word of the gospel at times have come into your eardrums, doesn't necessarily mean anything has happened. And Paul is saying that there must be imitation, that Christianity is a way. What they call Christianity in Acts. We're used to the term Christians, but it was called the way over and over and over again. It was probably called that for a few reasons. One, Jesus said, I am the way. So he is the way, meaning if you're not in Jesus, you could do all these Christian things, but if you don't actually, you can kind of look in certain values, maybe like what a Christian might think or do. But unless you believe that he is the way, you're not a part of the way. And also, this is the both and, it's a way. It's a way of life. It's a way of living. And so he is reminding them that it is a walk. It's not simply a talk. Another commentator said, the opening four chapters of this letter can be summarized in the command, imitate me. That pretty much all of what he's been doing is saying, imitate me. Quit imitating these philosophers and these certain tribal members in your community that are trying to raise one leader above the other. Imitate me. And then what is he doing? He is imitating Christ. So he's not just saying, just look at me. Look at me because I'm following the way of Christ. And so Christian talk is not Christianity because Christianity thrives in relational imitation. Christianity thrives in relational imitation. And we're bad at that in Western culture. Probably everybody in this room are kind of bad at that because, again, we're framed individually. Why would I imitate this other person? (laughs) Why would they be telling me what to do? So there's something that we're missing here. We need to know that modeling matters in Christianity and that we should both seek to find models in people that we can follow and we should seek to be models, again, framed under and in Jesus Christ. What's interesting, I've been mentioning Stoicism a lot when I've been interested in it, but two, um, the Stoics were into imitation. They actually talked about it quite a bit. Now, we're talking about these different philosophies floating around, and Stoicism was big in that culture. One of the Stoic leaders was Seneca. Seneca would have been around Rome, and, sorry, in Rome and around Nero's reign. This is all Paul's time. In fact, I was reading, you can fact check me on this, but I think Gallio, who is mentioned in Acts, may have been Seneca's brother. So Seneca, a lot of people know who this guy is if you go to school, um, or if you've gone to college or studied different things about Rome, that Seneca was a leading Stoic figure, and he talked very much like that. Listen to this. Listen, listen to what he says about imitation. He says this in his moral letters to Lucilius, again, written around the same time. I just find it very interesting when we hear things that were written around the same time as the Bible. It helps get our minds in what they're thinking. He says, far different is the purpose of those who are speech-making and trying to win the approbation of a throng of hearers, far different than of those who allure the ears of young men and idlers by many-sided or fluent argumentation. Philosophy teaches us to act, not to speak. It exacts of every man that he should live according to his own standards, that his life should not be out of harmony with his words. 
and that further his inner life should be of one hue and not out of harmony with all his activities. He goes on, Observe yourself then and see whether you dress in your house or inconsistent, whether you treat yourself lavishly and your family meanly, whether you eat frugal dinners and yet build luxurious houses. You should lay hold once for all upon a single norm to live by and should regulate your whole life according to this norm. So you don't just think Stoics as well. They're just the ones who say, don't imitate me. Some of them were saying, hey, also imitate me. Imitate a life of good values. But he also says this later in the same book. No man ought to glory except in that which is his own. So Seneca is placing glory and praise in himself. We can't glory in the other things outside because those things may change. We may die. Other people may die. Um, we don't want to glory in all the things that we have. We should live in a kind of appropriate, wise life. But really, it's about us. It's about reason. It's about what's inside. It's about getting that under control, getting ourselves under control. We know that though we may say, well, hey, Stoicism kind of asks for example. You may be hearing, hey, imitate people. But Paul, again, is framing this under and in Jesus Christ. That we can take, but what we cannot take is it's not our own resources. It's not the exaltation of ourselves. We glory, what has Paul been saying? We glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. We glory in the crucified King, in the crucified Messiah. So that is what we imitate. We're not just trying to become good Stoics. We're not just trying to be good selves, good human beings. We are tied to the crucified Messiah and that King. And that's who we Imitate, And so Paul is saying, hey, imitate me as I imitate Jesus Christ, which is the way of weakness, a crucified Messiah, a way that reverses the values of the world. He says, that is why, this is verse 17, back to Paul here, that is why I sent you Timothy. That could also be I am sending you. He's kind of saying, hey, I'm writing this letter here. Imitation is such a big deal, I'm not just sending you a letter. Imitation is such a big deal, I'm sending you Timothy. What does he say about Timothy? My beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Timothy is loved by Paul. It's like a father-son relationship. He is faithful. He is reliable. He is trustworthy. That's why I'm sending you Timothy. I was just really struck by that. I'm not just sending the letter. I'm sending a person. Again, this relational dynamic of what Christianity is to be. Why is he sending them? To remind you of my ways. There's that word again. My ways. Not just my teachings. My ways. In Christ. As I teach them everywhere in the church. So, Timothy, I'm sending him. He's on his way. He's coming. And he is going to remind you of my ways. But it's not just Timothy. It's not just me. It's not just you, Corinth. I'm not just saying this stuff over here and then not doing it over there. This is for every church. This is the way every single church should be. To imitate the way of Paul. To imitate the way of King Jesus. Not just the words, but the ways.
Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. This kind of struck me. If you've ever seen Star Wars. What, is it, what does he say? Darth Vader says, I am your father. Right? It's almost like Paul. I, I kind of just had that echoing in my ears as I was reading this. I am your father. I'm coming. Timothy's coming. You need to be imitating me. Of course, he's not Vader. But that's just what I had going on in my head. <clears throat> Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. They're prideful. They're still doing all their stuff. They're acting as if I'm never going to be there. Oh, Paul's gone. He left. He planted the church. He's, he's out of here. Come follow us. We got things. We got things down. But, verse 19, I will come to you soon. I'm coming. I'm coming. He takes action. I will be there. He makes a plan. He does it. And then he says, if the Lord wills. So he's not just passive, if the Lord wills. He's both. I'm coming. I plan to come. I will be there. But again, this is in Christ. This is God. God is sovereign. If God wills, other things may happen that may disrupt my plan. But if God wills, I'm going to be there. I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out, not the talk, there's that word again, of these arrogant people, but their power. So, Paul again, he speaks clearly. He's not pulling punches. When I come, I'm going to find out what these arrogant people are doing, what these prideful, puffed up people are doing in your congregation and see if it's just talk or if there's actual power. The Greek word talk, logos, power, dynamis. So again, we have this tension. They have logos. They have a lot of talk going on. But Paul is coming with dynamite power. And so Christian talk is not Christianity because it's always paired with power. So we don't just examine a stick of dynamite. Like if you want to know what a dynamite is, in our culture we kind of, well, we're going to kind of, kind of honestly, what we're kind of we're doing here, trying to examine what do these words say and the sentence structure and all that kind of stuff. Um, so we kind of take a stick of dynamite. We go, well, it's, you know, it's whatever. It's eight inches long and it's red. And if we light it on fire, there's going to be a circumference of 15 feet that's going to blow up and the, the explosion is going to be this high and this wide. We kind of sometimes treat Christianity as if it's like a, that we're kind of just examining. Oh, now we got it figured out. Now we know it. We're good. Good to go. I'm going to heaven. That's not what Christianity is. It's saying that the Christian message of the cross is dynamite. That there is an explosion of power. That the message, the good news of King Jesus is to be explosive in power. It's a demonstration. It's a way of life. It is a word and a way. So the best way to learn about what dynamite is is to blow it up, right? So that's what we pray. That's what we're asking God. Hey, God, take this and blow this up in my life. Blow this up in Redwood Christian Fellowship. We want to be people of power. And by that, I don't mean like some successful competing power. I mean real gospel power that has an effect, that has real 
change. Verse 20. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. The kingdom of God. The rule and reign of God. Jesus talked about that often. Whose kingdom is it? God's kingdom. It's not Paul's kingdom. It's not Bob's kingdom. It's not BJ's kingdom. It's not anybody else in this room's kingdom. It is God's kingdom. It is Christ's kingdom. And it is a reign and a rule. And it's that He is Lord over everything. That's what Christianity is saying. Everybody will bow to Jesus one day, period, end of story. And so, the kingdom of God, the royal rule and reign of God invaded the earth in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He went around proclaiming the kingdom. And then he went around doing several things. Exercising demons, healing the sick. And so, the kingdom came not just as a proclamation, but as a demonstration. There was power in the message. It had an effect. It was the overthrow of satanic rule. It was the forgiveness of sins. It was the defeat of death. When Jesus went and saw people rise from the dead, called them forth, healed their bodies. When the kingdom of God comes, change happens. It does not just come in talk. Matthew 4. This is talking about Jesus, verse 23. He went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues. Okay, there's talk. They're in a synagogue, a nice religious setting, doing some teaching. And proclaiming, he's proclaiming it, he's announcing it. It's an announcement. The good news, it's come. And healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So again, the both and here. The proclamation and the demonstration. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And so, we too should be praying and for power. All of it. All the way through. We don't want to have a division between charismatic Christianity and doctrinal Christianity. It's proclamation and it's demonstration. And we should ask, oh God, would you come in power in me and in us? Oh God, would you come in power? The power of, would people in our lives receive forgiveness of sins to change their life to make new people? And the power of God to heal. God, would you heal Kathy right now? Would you heal other people that aren't here right now? Would you do that? We want the kingdom to come in power. And this isn't something that we can give in and of ourselves. But we know that that's what the kingdom of God is. It's all of those things that it actually makes change happen. It is dynamite. And so God, increase our faith about your royal rule, your reign, that has come because it's come in Jesus, so we can see it now, and it is to come. The kingdom will one day sweep over everything in a new heavens and a new earth. It has come. It is coming. We're not there yet. 
That's this tension between the already and the not yet. But man, we're going to pray that it happens. So, power, change, action, the overthrow of various tyrannies like sin and Satan and death. The kingdom of God consists in that. What do you wish? This is verse 21. Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? What do you wish, Corinthian Christians? What are you hoping for with all this stuff? Do you want me to come with a rod? <laughs> the Father. Imagine asking your kid that. What do, you, what do you wish? And of course, this rod can also be metaphorical. But it says, hey, am I going to come as like the stern disciplinarian? Or... Am I going to come with love and a spirit of gentleness? Gentleness. So again, what's your knee-jerk reaction to error? <laughs> what's your knee-jerk reaction to error? Sometimes mine is not gentleness. But people that are gospel-shaped, people that trust in the power of the gospel and the good news of King Jesus, the gospel is one of grace... So one of the ways of the gospel should be gentleness. And so his knee-jerk response is going to be first love and gentleness. I love this description of gentleness by John Webster. Gentleness is not indifference to sin. Okay, it's not that. It's not mere softness, pretending that sin isn't sin, because that's not a way of dealing with failure, but a way of avoidance. Gentleness is truthful, realistic, looks failure in the eye and sees it for what it is, but it doesn't fall into the hostility that so often threatens to engulf us when we try to deal with the sins of others. Gentleness is the opposite of the fierce, bitter, censorious, accusatory attitude that very quickly mars the way in which we handle failure. It deals gently with failure. Not because it underestimates or minimizes the seriousness of sin, but because gentleness is in accordance with the deep truth of the gospel. And isn't it good news? What was Jesus described as? Gentle and lowly. He came to sinners in a gentle way. He came to sinners to save them. To embrace them. Not to not confront their sin. He's calling them that. Another part of the gospel of the kingdom. Repent and believe the gospel. Switch your whole way of thinking. Turn to me. The gospel is going to require a different thing. It's the kingdom of God. It's not the kingdom of this world. But Jesus comes with gentleness. And we should too. We should know that. We should believe that. Jesus is gentle. He is gracious. He is good. And so, this kind of concludes kind of this section. We're going to be transitioning into some new topics in chapter 5 next, next week. But, we need to see that Christian talk is not Christianity. Christianity is one of imitation. Christianity is one of power. Christianity is not Gnostic. One of the great heresies of the early church was Gnosticism. 
kind of this, this kind of abstract philosophical way of going at life, different secrets that you could access. But Christianity was God in the flesh. It came in power. It entered into the real life of people. God came down as a man into our, into the mess of all of this. And He came in weakness. He came with His body and with His blood to conquer Satan, sin, and death. And that's one of the reasons why we do communion every week. is to kind of remind us that this gospel is about power. It's about real life. It's not just a sermon on Sunday morn. We weekly celebrate that Jesus came in the flesh. We take the body and the blood to remind us of who He is and what He has done for us. So let's do that this morning. Oh, Brian. 
now celebrating the power of Jesus, the power of Jesus that came in weakness as a crucified king. 1 Corinthians 11, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So we see the good news demonstrated in what we just did. And, as verse 28 says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Amen. I heard an story how a Savior came from glory, how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning, of his precious blood's atoning, and I repented of my sins and won the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with His redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew Him, and all my love is due Him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. I heard about His healing, of His cleansing power revealing, how He made the lame to walk again, and caused the blind to see. And then I cried, Dear Jesus, come and heal my broken spirit. And somehow Jesus came and brought to me the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. 
He sought me and bought me with His redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew Him, and all my love is to Him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. I heard about a mansion He built for me. And I heard about the streets of gold Beyond the crystal sea About the angels singing And the old redemption story And some sweet day I'll sing up there The song of victory Oh, victory in Jesus my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with His redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew Him and all my love is due Him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. You guys have a great week. God bless you.